The reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and it's found on page 674. 674. And we're starting at verse 1 to verse 18. A good name is better than perfume and the day of death better than a day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why are the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, do keep that passage open. We are in chapter uh, 7, not chapter 1. And uh, it's always good to have a Bible in front of us. Not least you can check the things I say, that they are in the Bible, I'm not making them up. You might have wondered, actually, when you heard that reading, whether that was being made up, whether the reader had lost the plot. But actually, if you follow the scriptures uh, on your lap, you will know that actually what was read is here in the scriptures. So we are back in Ecclesiastes this morning, as you would have gathered. Um, maybe you're slightly relieved that we are sort of heading into the home straits of this series. Uh, it is a, a perplexing book. It's a, it's a riveting book, I think, in lots of ways. Um, uh, as our teacher tries to pass on wisdom to us that will help us make sense of life, often life that is confusing and frustrating, as we've already acknowledged this morning. Well, let's pray that God will give us that wisdom now as we uh, study his words uh, together. Father, we always uh, need wisdom. 
Uh, not just to understand your word, but to know how to apply it to our lives. And this morning's no different. So please help us as we seek to um, explore your word, as I explain it, as we hear it. Please let your wisdom shape our lives as we live in its light. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're thinking about wisdom, uh, particularly this morning, um, and I hope by now we've realised that wisdom is far more than knowledge, uh, though it's connected. It's more than intellectual understanding, though it involves our minds. It is possible, isn't it, to have knowledge, perhaps lots of letters after your name, and not be wise. I remember working at university with people who had PhDs and lots of letters after their names, and many of them were unable to make any sense of life, and for all their knowledge, they seem to be incapable of living wisely. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the, the long-running sitcom uh, Frasier. Um, Frasier and his brother Nas are two psychiatrists who have brilliant minds, but are pretty clueless uh, when it comes to life and to love. Uh, their dad, Marty, in many ways, is the opposite. A cop with very simple taste. Marty is forever the one sorting out the mess of his two, old, his two boys and what they get into. Uh, he hasn't got much formal education, um, but the irony is he's the one who is wise, who understands life and has figured out how to live it. And although our world, I think, values the clever and celebrates the intellect, uh, actually what we need is wisdom, practical uh, wisdom to help us live life and make sense of it. And our, our hunger for wisdom, I think, is expressed in, in different ways. Perhaps today, it's in those endless shelves of self-help books that fill waterstones. Notice that? Uh, the books that offer five steps to turn your life around. The seven principles to, to guarantee financial success or fix your relationships in 30 days might be my imagination, but as I surveyed some of those shelves this week, it seemed the claims that they're making ever get bigger, and the principles and the time needed to do those principles in gets less. I, I don't know if it's true or not. Well, in the ancient world, uh, wisdom was sought in the, the writings of the wise, who often recorded their uh, findings in pithy proverbs that sought to encapsulate life. And if you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll know that there are lots of those kinds of sayings uh, in that part of the Bible. Now, of course, uh, Proverbs are, are generalisations and actually themselves need wisdom to apply them rightly. So we know, don't we, that too many cooks uh, spoil the broth, but we also know that many hands make light work. Both are true, and we need wisdom, don't we, to know which to apply in different situations. And I think that the, the, the teachers already warned us against searching for that sort of magic bullet um, that explains or fixes everything. And even as, as he's caught a little glimpse, perhaps, of that elusive wisdom, as you think he's got a handle on life, as we've seen, as he tries to, to grab hold of it, it seems to sort of slip through his fingers, a bit like vapour and mist. So even this morning, as the teacher presents some of his uh, findings uh, in his own proverbs that offer light and wisdom, I think his words come with a warning. Here are observations and here are reflections uh, that are to, with a soft suck on and sort of mull over, chew over. 
rather than some sort of algorithm to slot into life that will turn life the right way up and guarantee success. And I thought, I really appreciate the honesty of this teacher this morning as he tries to make sense of life in a crooked world, where things are not always straightforward, where things don't work out to neat formulas. Well, there's lots here this morning, but I think there are several key threads that run through our passage this morning and direct us on that path of wisdom. Here's the first one. Uh, face death and embrace suffering, verses 1 to 4. Well, opening verse of our passage claims that a good reputation is of great value. Uh, no perfume or aftershave could hide the stink, can it, of a bad reputation. But notice how the teacher follows that up. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That kind of jars, doesn't it? Yeah, makes sense of that. Uh, some have tried to put a spiritual gloss on it. Perhaps a teacher like the Apostle Paul is saying that uh, to die for Christians is gain. But notice how the teacher goes on. Verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. A frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Well, we get the message, don't we? Choose the funeral over the party, says the teacher. I don't think the teacher's being a masochist. He's not talking about us finding the most miserable people and hanging out with them indefinitely. No, he's actually told us already in this, in this book to enjoy life and to get as much delight from it and its pleasures as possible. But I think uh, in a culture that puts a premium on happiness and having fun, uh, one that is often unwilling to face up to the uh, realities of life, not least as it comes to an end, there is, I think, in the words of the teacher, much to learn uh, about death and from those who are dying. Uh, more wisdom to gain as we acknowledge and reflect on those things that our culture would very happily ignore and deny. Just live in the moment, we're told. Shut your eyes and just enjoy the now. How different from the wisdom of the Bible that regularly reminds us to take account of death and life's brevity. If we ignore that, the Bible says, we are fools. I think that's why Moses in Psalm 90 prays uh, this prayer that we might remember uh, the days, oh, I missed a bit there, that we might remember or be taught to number the days of our lives if we are to have a heart of wisdom. One of the last times we prayed that particular prayer. Of course, we can't avoid death, and so the wise life is the one that doesn't hide from that reality. It's true, isn't it? Anglican funeral services urge us to face up to our mortality. And there's much, I think, to gain as I hear a eulogy and reflect perhaps on what others might say about me uh, when my life too comes to its inevitable conclusion. And death doesn't only clarify things, it shows us what is of value, doesn't it, and what is of real worth, and what's important. Isn't it revealing how people, as they draw to the close of life, will often value relationships over riches? Uh, they will prioritise people over uh, possessions. And I, for one, have found the wisdom of the dying a challenge to what I value uh, in my life. 
But I have been to funerals that felt more like parties of people gathering to try and, as it were, drown out the reality of death, turning up the music, letting the alcohol flow, making sure that eulogies sound more like stand-up. But the teacher urges us to, to linger, doesn't he? Uh, not to move on too quickly if we are to have hearts of wisdom. I discovered this week as I was preparing that the king uh, of uh, Macedon, Philip, father of Alexander the Great, charged one of his slaves with a unique responsibility. The monarch instructed his vassal uh, to awaken him each morning with these words. Philip, remember you must die. Well, our world won't be uh, thankful if you remind them of that truth. Indeed, it will do everything, won't it, to keep that reality out of our minds. So let the teacher remind us this morning so that we might live wisely with the right priorities. I think what is true of death, I think, is also true of suffering more generally, isn't it? I'm sure not the only one that uh, recognises there's often much to learn uh, from those who suffer. And as we ourselves go through periods of suffering. Often said that our, t- our regular testimony evenings have that sort of tenor, don't they, about them. Often lives that are shared, stories that are told about hard times, difficult times, but times in which God has been at work, perhaps, where there's been glimmers of understanding that God is doing good things, even in hard times. Someone once said, you have to crush lavender to experience the richness of its fragrance. And I've certainly found that those who give off the flavour and aroma of Christ most strongly are invariably those who've suffered. Uh, Robert Browning Hamilton captured the truth, I think, of the teacher very memorably in the following poem. I walked to Mar with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked to Mar with sorrow, and there a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Of course, one of the frustrations of suffering uh, often is not seeing that simple connection between the things we go through and what God's purposes might be for us in it. And I think when Christians try and draw those sorts of straight lines uh, between the two, the teacher would say, be careful. There's often mystery in suffering, things that we don't see uh, in suffering or even after in terms of what God is doing. It means that in the messy confusion of suffering, we have to trust God, don't we? Trust the God who loves us and alone is able to turn the most crooked paths into blessing. And while we're not to seek suffering, if we are to be wise, we will humbly embrace it and look for the wisdom it brings. Well, if living now like, as, as those under the sun um, involves looking at death and, and considering suffering, we also learn to, here I think, verses 5 to 12, flee folly and pursue wisdom. If living life now means keeping the end in view, verses 5 to 12, I think the teacher offers us some very practical help, uh, gleaned from his experience his observations that will help us choose wisdom over folly. In fact, in these, uh, in this, these verses, I think seven times the word wisdom or wise appears. I think four times the word fool and folly appears. 
And he begins this section by reminding us of the importance of listening to the rebukes of the wise person rather than the songs of fools. Like the cracking of thorns in the fire, lots of noise, but little heat. So the upbeat and endlessly cheerful musings of the fool actually will teach us very little. But the rebukes, the uncomfortable words, the honest words of a wise person will. One of the great blessings of being part of a church family, I think, is that we have opportunities uh, to talk to people who are wiser than us, who've got more experience of life and the scriptures than we do. I remember as a teenager really appreciating uh, those who were further down the Christian path than I was. Great to talk to them about trying to figure out life, asking for their suggestions, their their wisdom over the kind of work I should do or the, the relationships I should pursue the ways I should use my gifts to serve God's people. I hope that goes on in the context of this church too, perhaps in our home groups, uh, maybe with our youth leaders, uh, those who've been Christians for longer than we have, who could help us be wise. And the teacher warns, I think, that sometimes we might need to hear wisdom that is uncomfortable, that involves challenge, even rebuke. It doesn't just sort of rubber stamp my choices, but often confronts me with truth that I'd rather not hear. That goes against our current culture and its insistence on affirming us and celebrating our choices. Of course, that often is music to our ears, but the teacher says it's the song of fools. And then in verses 7 to 10, the teacher gives us, I think, four very pithy proverbs that contain wisdom that will help us live wisely in the world. Let's look at them very briefly. But let me encourage you to keep chewing over these in the week ahead. So the first one relates to money, verse uh, 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. We've already been warned, haven't we, about the, the dangers of building our lives on money. But here we're warned about seeking in ways that involves compromise or dishonesty. So they don't know, everyone has a price. And the teacher warns us about acquiring money that damages our integrity. Just this week I was reading about the former England manager Sam Allardyce. He describes being selected to manage the England football team as the pinnacle of his footballing career. But his reign as manager turned out to be the shortest on record, just uh, 10 weeks, as he was found to have used his position to negotiate a £400,000 bonus and to offer advice to those about how to get round the transfer rules that applies. Afterwards, he was fired. He acknowledged he was uh, very silly. He made an error of judgment. Perhaps if he heeded the words of the teacher, he might still be in post. Perhaps we shake our heads at his stupidity, but maybe we found ourselves tempted to perhaps into silence over something we've seen at work because someone's offered us a promotion. Perhaps we've been lured into some sort of offer for something Uh, Money for nothing. Some internet scam and we've made ourselves foolish. And then verse 8, second proverb. uh, The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Here I think the teacher's warning us about being those who are are quick to make big promises. Great with coming up with ideas but regularly failing to deliver on what we've promised. We often don't we point at governments who consistently overpromise, but perhaps as parents or in our work environments, we 
We're known as those who offer much, but maybe deliver little. As the phrase goes, we're all mouth and no trousers. Good intentions, but rarely followed through on. Still, I think he urges us to, to be the sort of people who reflect first. To do the hard math, to ask ourselves, can I do this? Can I finish what I start? Or will I see it through to the end? When I was young, I remember my parents warning me about starting things I never finished. Yeah. Especially when patience and hard graft was required. And now perhaps there are other reasons. I know I can often overcommit, overpromise, perhaps wanting the glow and the approval of others, only to down the path to let them down. Third proverb, verse 9, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Teachers observe that fools are often hotheads. The red mist descends very quickly. And perhaps we can recall times in our anger, our heat of moment, where we've said things that have wounded, things that have damaged, things that we can't undo. Of course, it's not always wrong, is it, to get angry. We know that God gets angry. But the Bible says that God is a God who is slow to anger. And anger uncontrolled, undealt with, can fester, can't it? it can lead to, to bitterness. And I see many uh, nursing, harbouring anger, holding on to it like a, a dog on a lap, thinking they can control it, but it ends up controlling and destroying them. Perhaps most tragic of all, those, uh, there are those, aren't there, who nurse anger, hold on to grudges, and just lose sight of the gospel. Uh, deny that God who is patient with us. God who forgives far greater offences than those that are ever committed against us. Being easily angered, uh, holding on to anger, says the teacher, is the path of the fool. It's not wise, and it will consume us. Then fourth, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Being on the wrong side of 50, I think I'm old enough to say with some authority that things are really not quite what they used to be. And as you get older, I guess that there are those dangers, aren't there, of always uh, succumbing, I suppose, to nostalgia. Looking back and thinking that life was so much better in the good old days. So here's a quote, see if anyone can guess who said it. The children nowadays love luxury, they have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter in the place of exercise. Sorry? Very close. It was actually Socrates. Socrates. But it could be the Daily Mail, couldn't it? It could be on Saturday. I mean, it could have been, couldn't it? It seems so current. Here's the irony. We've been talking about the good old days for millennia. Even centuries before Socrates, the teacher, was talking about the good old days. Actually, it's not just old people who do that. Uh, I've heard sixth formers talking about the nostalgia of when they started in year seven, how much better it was then than it is now. Uh, perhaps we think about that too in, in terms of context of work. Life was so much better before we got taken over. And churches are not immune, are they? Things are so much better under the old vicar. I hope people won't be saying that in the, in the coming months here. Well, that harping back to what we consider to be better times is not the way of wisdom, says the teacher. It's the way of fools. 
think that seems harsh. Uh, speaking about nostalgia in the same breath as bribery and extortion, I think he's right. To live in the past blinds us, doesn't it, to what God is doing in the present and the opportunities and God's plans for the future. And if we are Christians, if God is with us, uh, he still has good plans, doesn't he, for us, both in the present and great promises that he will fulfil in the future. Let's not miss those by living in some hazy and skewed view of the past. Well, better to be wise than be a fool. I wonder if any of those four proverbs particularly resonates with us. Maybe the ones we should be mulling over in this week ahead. See, wisdom has benefits, even in a crooked world. Look down at verse 11. Wisdom is like an inheritance. It's a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Having wisdom is like having something set aside for a rainy day. It offers, doesn't it, security. It's a shelter. It can protect us from danger and ruin. So choose wisdom. But, but, just when the teacher seems to be sounding like one of those self-help books, four principles to have that great life now, he gives us a reality check. He says, in effect, uh, for all the benefits, for all that wisdom offers, living wisely now has its limitations. If the first part of our passage is the glass half full now, let me just finish very quickly on the glass half empty. So point three, factor in the limits of wisdom. Look down at verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? See, life now, life under the sun and in a fallen world is never going to be about straight lines. It is a, a world marked by sin and sickness and death. And in this crooked world, things don't always work out as they ought at times, reality bites. Verse 15, sometimes the wicked prosper, live long, and the righteous perish. And for all our best efforts to understand it and to live wisely, there it will be much that we cannot simply make sense of now. Well, just as we're about to throw our hands up in despair and wonder why we ever listened to the teaching in the first place, um, I think he points us to God. A God who knows all things, who knows the beginning from the end, and who alone is wise. Verse 13, consider what God has done. You can't straighten what God has made crooked. You can't resolve every conundrum, make sense of every situation scenario. And as we acknowledge the limits of our understanding, the teacher urges us to trust a God who in his wisdom brings joys and sorrows into our lives. A God who does have good purposes for us in both those experiences. But often we don't understand it, at least not now, as we live under the sun. Sure, wisdom brings help. Uh, It brings and provides some kind of protection. But at times, wisdom comes, as it were, to an end. And you won't know what God is doing in your suffering. You won't know what to say to a friend who is utterly perplexed by life. 
You won't be able to draw straight lines between why God had allowed something in your life that you didn't want or choose and the good that he's bringing through it. And the teacher says, look, verse 14, when life is making sense, when time is, times are good, uh, wisdom is giving you the kind of joys and happiness in life, uh, then be happy, be thankful. But when times are bad, consider this, God made the one as well as the other. And in those moments, you will simply have to hang onto God. And your shelter won't be your wisdom. Your shelter will be God's sovereignty and his goodness. You will say, I I have no idea. I don't know what to say to you. I I don't know how I can help. Other than I know this, God is in control. And his sovereignty and goodness is your shelter. Not your ability or wisdom to work it all out. Later in verse 23 of this chapter, the teacher describes the frustrations of seeking wisdom. It's like clutching mist at times. I was determined to be wise, but it was beyond me. Pretty realistic, isn't it? It's honest. As I finish, before the Bible is done on the subject of wisdom, it tells us of a God who sent into the world not a set of principles that embody wisdom, but a person. Uh, One who grew up and was filled with wisdom. Who knew the right things to say, to do, in every situation. Uh, He had answered the questions that had baffled the wisest, not least how we could know God and be ready to meet him on that final day. He was truly wise. And yet on a Roman cross, he perished. And to most eyes, that looks like the greatest of foolishness, doesn't it? A God on a cross. But he was taking on himself our sin, our folly for deviating from God's good paths. And in the mystery of that event, its insane wickedness and evil, uh, he revealed God's love and forgiveness, God's wisdom. And now we have more than, we than principles to live by. We have a person, the one Paul described as our wisdom. And if we walk through life with him and obey him and trust him, the Bible says we will be wise. It will be like building our house, our lives on a rock. It won't mean that we avoid the storms of life that shake our faith, but it will mean that that great storm of God's judgment won't cause the building the life to fall down, it will stand. So in the light of Jesus, our wisdom, let's face up to death, knowing he defeated it and has removed its sting. Let's embrace suffering, convinced that in the light of the cross, that God is able to bring the most surprising good uh, from the most terrible suffering. And let's listen to God's word this week. Every word of rebuke, as we seek to align ourselves with, with Jesus and go his way rather than ours. Confident that that is the way of wisdom and the one who is our wisdom will be with us. We pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the wisdom of this teacher who says things that are uncomfortable who offers wisdom that has its limits. Father, we thank you for his wisdom in pointing us to 
to you, that God who is alone wise. Please help us to trust you in all our confusion and our uncertainty. Help us to be encouraged to do that as we see your wisdom in the face of the Lord Jesus. Please help us to walk closely with him and on his good paths this week we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.